Now, as most of you know, uh, we just started a new sermon series last week called The Shape of the Liturgy, How the Liturgy is Shaped and How the Liturgy Shapes Us. Now, some of you might not know this word liturgy. Liturgy just means our order or structure of worship. And You know, as you come to an Anglican church, maybe if you were raised in a low church tradition, you say, wow, you guys have a lot of things going on. And well, we do because we believe they actually matter. The minute we walk into church and begin our worship service, every component is grounded in scripture and we pray is shaping us in light of what scripture teaches. Not only is there a shape to the liturgical structure, but we believe that repeated practices actually shape us. And so in order to help some of you who have been here a while or like me have maybe forgotten the significance of things, we're going to look at every component of the liturgy and show how it is grounded in God's good and holy word. Now, last week we started by looking at the overarching shape of the liturgy, the call and the response. You'll notice that the liturgy is always shaped as a dialogue by some liturgical leader who represents Christ to God's people. And the congregation who represents the bride of Christ responds to the spoken word. Now, what we talked about last week is this is the, the shape of our, the Christian life. This is the shape of grace that God comes to us in grace and speaks first. He doesn't leave us in the silence of our sin, but he speaks forth. And when he speaks, he breathes life. Just as he spoke in the beginning and creation came into being. Just as Hebrews 1 teaches us, he continues to speak creation into being. Every moment of every day, the word himself is holding all things together. And so too we believe when God's word is spoken to God's people, it shapes us. It forms us into who he proclaims we are. But it's interesting, we do not merely have a monologue in our uh, liturgical service, just as we don't have a monologue in our relationship with God. Rather, he calls us to respond to him. There is not merely a call, there is also a response. But even that response is an act of grace, because we believe that our response can only happen as the Holy Spirit breathes through our vocal cords and lifts up praise to our Father in heaven. We can only even have access to our Father in heaven because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who brings us into the very presence of God. Even our response is a work of grace by our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So while we are a liturgical church, we are first and foremost a Trinitarian church where our God speaks and he moves through us to respond. Now, this week, I want to do one more uh, preliminary sermon before we really crack open the Book of Common Prayer today, or as most of you know it, through the screen. Although I do encourage you all, you know, this should be in everybody's home. Pick up a copy. The new ACNA version is well done. Some people don't like the 1979. That's what I have. I actually think it's fine unless there's some weird liturgies towards the back that some people put in. But it's fine as well. Get a book of common prayer. But we're going to start that next week. This week, I would like to look 
at the very first act of liturgy that you all engage in on Sunday, you get out of bed and you come to church. The liturgy necessitates that we are here. The liturgy is inherently embodied. The very first liturgical act is when your alarm goes off, getting out of bed on the Lord's day and coming to worship with his people. Now, I want to make a preliminary point on all of that is we still have some people who do not have a doctor's permission to be with us because of the coronavirus pandemic, but every single one of them would be here if they could. That was a season that we all grieved together. There are some of us in this family that are still grieving it because they have complicating health issues, but it's not merely a way to replace gathered worship. And everyone who is not here with us mourns the fact that they can't be here with us. Our dear deacon, Roger Ducharme, would love to be leading us in the liturgy. He would. He recognizes as much as anyone else here that to be present with one another is central to what it means to be a Christian. And we pray that the Lord would usher the day that Lauren and Adele and Roger and Mary and so many others who have health complications would be brought back into the family fully. So remember them in your prayers. Reach out to them. This isn't to be unkind to those who still can't be with us. And yet, it is also a recognition that inherent in the liturgy is embodied worship. The very first liturgical act that we have every Sunday is joining together. So I want to look at two things today. First, I want to look at the formative nature of joining together. And again, we will get pretty philosophical. We will look at the inherent embodiment of formation. We are embodied creatures. We are liturgical creatures. We are creatures of habit. And how we form character and personhood is through repeated practices together. And that necessitates us being together. But second, I also want to remind us that Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we gather together as ministers of the gospel. We gather together to give praise to our Father in heaven, to be formed ourselves, but also as an act of service to one another, something that is necessarily embodied. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, I love how in poetic fashion, the author of Hebrews begins this section of text. He gives us this image of assurance in Jesus Christ. We are absolutely confident that we can approach the living God because we have been washed pure by the blood of the Lamb. We have a great high priest who ushers us beyond the curtain 
into the very presence, not of a distance and aloof God, but our Father in heaven. You see, so often we forget that, you know, when was the work of Christ complete? That's often a question I like to ask. Do you know when it was complete? A lot of people say, well, Jesus said it is finished upon the cross. That means he had finished paying for our sins. But the work of Christ is complete when? At the ascension. As he goes into the very holiest of holies. The reality itself, the throne room of God, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our perpetual great high priest. And he brings us with him. You know, the great high priest in the Old Testament, right? On the Day of Atonement had to be washed and purified with water and with blood. But he had to do it again and again, and only he could go in once a year and only for a short time. However, we have perpetual and eternal access to our Father in heaven because our great high priest has washed us clean with his blood, has purified us, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so that we might be forever in the presence of our Father in heaven, not only now, but into eternity. Now, what is he saying there? You have as much assurance as a human being can have. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have absolute confidence that God now views you as his beloved son, as his beloved daughter, and he welcomes you into life with him. And then, what does he say? Don't give up meeting together. You know, I hear this a lot amongst evangelicals. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a church person. Hebrews 10 is like, that does not make any sense, okay? Nowhere in the New Testament can you be a Christian outside of the church. Those, that's a category mistake, To be a part of the people of God means that you are part of the embodied people of God, warts and all. Now, what is going on particularly in our passage? He talks about holding fast to the confession of our hope, about being assured of our status before God in heaven. Well, the question we ought to ask is, how do we grow in our assurance? How do we know when the storms of life come? That our Father still looks upon us and smiles. That our God has not turned his back upon us. Well, Calvin points out that the church is the schoolhouse of discipleship. The church is the place where we grow in assurance. The church is the place where each week I get the privilege of assuring you that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he has not turned his back on you. This is the place where we grow in assurance. Now, how do we grow in assurance? How are people formed? And why do we believe that it's important to be formed liturgically? Well, in order to answer that, again, I'm going to get somewhat philosophical here. We believe ultimately that all of knowledge, all of formation, all of character is formed in embodied practices. You can't escape your body no matter how hard we try. We are inherently physical creatures. And how we grow people and develop people is always a cultural, social, and physical task. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
uh, college football started yesterday, right? I watched some college football yesterday, and I'm reminded why I quit watching football. It's boring. I, I become a, I'm fully sold out for soccer, and I forgot how foul and terrible American commercials are. And you don't have to watch them when you watch soccer. So I watched football yesterday. I was reminded, yeah. I, was, I think I was explaining it to Lanny once, and when he was telling me that American football was boring, and I was trying to explain to him how it wasn't. How I describe it is, it's chess with giant men, right? That's what it is. That's why I, one of my British professors in undergraduate, I went to Purdue, we won yesterday. Uh, he was like, why do you guys always blame the coach? Like, because the coach matters in this game. It's chess with giant men. Now, what happens in practice? Those giant men repeat the play over and over and over again. If you like football, you know I'm just teasing, by the way. So you put the X's and O's on a chart. Have you learned the play? In theory, kind of, right? But your body doesn't know the play. Your subconscious doesn't know the play. You're not ready to do the play on the field. Rather, in practice, you practice the play again and again and again. So when the play is called in the field and you're on the two-yard line and you're down by six, you can plow it through, right? And you know what to do. You know, actually, all of learning is functionally that way. You submit to a process of learning. I often say when people ask me, well, how did you learn how to read philosophy? You learn how to read really slow and you learn how to not quit. That's really it. You learn how to read slow and you learn how to not quit. And it took years of practice, of reading slowly and not quitting and meeting in office hours and submitting myself to a ritual, a practice, a liturgy of learning. You know, I shared this with you a few months ago. Uh, a lot of research is showing now that children, babies, stare at their mom's face for eight hours a day on average. Is they're nursing, is they're communing, is they're doing whatever, right? And what are they asking? They're asking, Mom, who are we? Right? Because they don't have an understanding of selfhood yet. Rather, you form an understanding of selfhood through relationality. Now, I think that's because our great God of relationship, the Trinity, breathed forth a creation of relationality, right? But through repeated practices, a child learns who they are. You know, if you want to build a patriot, right? You say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. You have flyovers over uh, football games. You do all of these practices over the course of a lifetime to form a person's cultural and mental identity. And you know, the church is no different. We are liturgical creatures, and therefore we believe in liturgical worship. In fact, you see it all over the Old Testament, the Old Testament worship was very structured, very ordered, to form a very specific kind of people. Their church calendar was structured and ordered to form a specific kind of people. And our worship is structured and ordered to create a specific kind of people. We are the kind of people who worship in word and sacrament because we are people fundamentally who hear as God speaks to us and draws us forth. But we are also creatures of physicality, of eyes and hands. And so we believe in the visible word, the sacrament. As our God communicates, I love you this much, that I establish my covenant with you in my son's body 
and blood. We are a people who believe in confession and forgiveness. You know, these are the two things that our world today cannot understand is confession and forgiveness. Because to confess, you have to admit that you have moral guilt. And we've removed moral guilt and replaced it with sickness, right? I have a sickness, but I don't have guilt. But we all know we actually have guilt. And our world has no concept of forgiveness, right? If you've been canceled, there's no way to get back, right? We live in the greatest puritanical age that any of us have ever seen. But there's no concept of forgiveness. But in this place, this place, you can confess. This place, you can admit your moral guilt. And in this place, you can be restored. A story that the world desperately needs. In this place, we pass the peace to each other, communicating that our God has set us free from animosity in comparison against one another, but has liberated us as priests to bless each other. Each week we gather together and the cross comes forward, proclaiming that we are first and foremost monarchists. Yes, I said that to a bunch of Americans. We are monarchists who have a king. When we gather together, this is a political rally every Sunday. We recognize that we have a new family. That is why it is appropriate to call people brother and sister. It's even if you forget each other's names, just say hi, brother, right? Because that's true. We are a people who need to be formed into liturgical practices that proclaim who we actually are. And here's what I want to tell you. The world knows this. There is an entire world of marketing that knows full well how to capture your identity through liturgical practices that are seeking to sway you into their world and to buy what they're selling you. And because we live in a world of liturgical practices, you feel it. Why do you pick up your phone repeatedly? Why do you hit refresh on it? You know they did that because of slot machines, right? To addict you to your... The world knows that liturgy matters. And therefore, we need a church that has a greater liturgy, a more profound liturgy that tells us who we actually are in Christ because we are constantly being bombarded by deformative liturgies in our world. The question is not, are you liturgical? The question is, what is the fundamental liturgy of your life? And here's what I want to tell you, family. You can only be in one place at a time. And therefore, the first liturgical act that you engage to be formed week in and week out by the one true story of redemption in Christ alone is to be here with us. Now, I want to make a slight brief aside uh, with children. Christian Smith, many of you know him. He's probably the most prolific Christian sociologist of the past few decades. He wrote a book called Religious Parenting. Uh, much of the sticky faith research is, is built upon it. And, you know, we've talked about the five to seven meaningful relationships with non-parental adults. That's why we have youth group. That's why we have our children's ministries. You have a responsibility to, to bless these children. But Smith points out the three most significant aspects of handing on the faith to children are these. And they're mutually supporting, and they are wildly effective. First, parents talk to their children liturgically, repeatedly, about God in a natural way. As you're going for a hike, as you're cooking dinner. You know, a story that always sticks out in my mind is my son and I were 
pulling up dandelions from our yard because we had a lot of dandelions in our yard and it's a lot of work. And Lanny always lets me borrow this really cool thing. It goes and you shoot it. Um, so Miles and I like to do that together. And I asked him a question. I said, Miles, can the yard pull these dandelions out? Well, no, Dad. We got to pull the dandelions. Yeah. This yard really needs these dandelions out, but it can't pull them out, can it? If they let go, it's going to eat up the yard. You know, it's a lot like our sin, son. We need somebody to come in from outside and pull it out. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And he was in a lot of trouble about a month later, and he was crying. He said, Dad, I got to get the weeds out. And I remember thinking, what? He said, the weeds, the weeds, I can't get them out. I remember thinking, oh, you can't, but someone can. See, natural conversations with children repeatedly matter, and they're listening. The other one is that children see their parents repeatedly engaging in practices of devotion at home. I'll never forget, you know, normally my dad was always gone to work before I got up in the morning. He was a pretty driven architect. But on Sundays, as an elder of our church, he was always at church before us, but he made a point in the chair by the door, he would open his Bible and read it every Sunday. And all of my siblings have always said, that had such an impact on us. But the third thing, the third repeating practice that matters is bringing your kids to church. When these three things come together, we see incredible power as children are brought into a story with their parents and with their church family to have reinforcing uh, liturgies that form them into the story of Jesus Christ. This is the work tribal families doing. This is the work that Trinity is seeking to do. This is the work that we are called to do as parents and as a church, actually being present together matters because we are liturgical creatures. But second, I also want to point out something, and we see it in Hebrews 10. We are also called here to serve one another. Look at it with me. 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, every Sunday, I get the privilege of waking up at 5 a.m. I wake up most days at 5 a.m., but especially on Sundays. And I pray through the sermon. I drink a bunch of coffee. I get ready for the day because I get to be with all of you. It's going to be wonderful. I love being with you. It's my favorite day of the week. But I also come with a burden, right? A burden of knowing that I have a responsibility of liturgical leadership here. A responsibility to preach the word clearly, as most of you know, I'm always fretting about that. But you know what? All of you wake up on Sunday mornings with a responsibility to be here, whether you know it or not. All of you have a task, according to Hebrews chapter 10, of stirring one another up to love and good deeds, of stirring one another up and serving one another sacrificially. We are called to be a different kind of people in a world of narcissism, in a world where it's all about me and my needs. 
the church is ultimately a place where we are liberated to truly see each other. We are liberated to see one another's needs. We are liberated to actually serve. You know, this guy, Matt, Laura, grew up with Matt Smethers. He wrote an article about this, and he commented on all of the ways the New Testament uses this phrase, one another, and how we are called to serve. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. Jesus says in John 13, 35, love one another. Romans 15, 7, welcome one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, care for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, agree with one another. Ooh, that's a tough one. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive one another. Colossians 3, 16, teach one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, do good to one another. James 5, 16, confess to one another. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. We are called to be servants of one another. The question is not who is at the top of the church. The question is who's at the bottom because that's where we're all called to be. But you know, it's interesting. Lots, some of us are, are rather comfortable serving. However, in order for us to serve, we also need those who are served. Part of being a community of worship is being a place of vulnerability where not only can you risk loving each other in service, but you can also risk asking for help. It's a two-way street. You know, Carrie's sermon this past Maundy Thursday was probably the best Maundy Thursday sermon I've heard because it, it helped me see that. If You know, most of us, you know, we, Maundy Thursdays when you wash each other's feet, most of us are pretty okay washing somebody else's feet. And we hate getting our feet washed. That was a profound point she made. That in order for us to be a community of service, it's not merely coming to church every Sunday prepared to serve, but it's also coming to church and building relationships so that you can vulnerably ask for help. This is a place not only where we are called to serve, but it's also a place where we are permitted to be served without shame. Because so often in our world, the most shameful thing you can do is ask for help. So my question for you is twofold, threefold, sorry. First, if you're new here, I recognize it is very hard to serve and be served when you're brand new, okay? Let's own that. And there's a lot of new people here. That's great. Here's all I ask. The very first step is committing to the place and building relationships so then you can be served and served. The very first step in this process, commit and join. Be vulnerable. Invite someone over. Serve in that way. I don't know. But one day I recognize that it's hard at the very beginning. But commit so that you can serve and be served. The second thing is this, is have you, when's the last time at church, if you've been here a while, you've genuinely asked someone, how can I pray for you? Genuinely asked it. You know, the great service of the church that we so often forget is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. When's the last time you asked somebody, how can I pray for you? I challenge you sometime this week, ask somebody, what's one way I can pray for you, brother or sister? And then finally, 
If there's some place where you are desperately in need of service, to courageously ask for help. A a community of trust, a community of formation, a community of service is a place where we risk in vulnerability asking for help. But I also want to point out that when we serve one another, which as I think goes without saying, is inherently embodied, which means you need to be here, something else happens. It's also a part of our liturgical formation. As we continue to serve one another, as we continue to be served, as we form a culture of servanthood, we are being liturgically, repeatedly formed into the image of our servant king. It is a part of the liturgy to serve each other because who are we being formed into? Our king who tied a towel around his waist and served his disciples. And we see this beautifully revealed in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." We are a people that are called to be formed into that image. That person is our king. That is the image of the good life that we are all orienting towards. The image of servanthood because we serve a servant king. We gather together every Sunday to be formed, but also to serve. And in our service, we are being formed. But finally and most importantly... We gather together to worship because our God is worthy of worship. Psalm 68, our psalm today, reads, Sing to God, sing in praise of His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Family, ultimately, while we come here, ultimately, is because our God is worthy of praise. We serve our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is perfect truth, who is perfect beauty, who is perfect goodness, who is perfect holiness, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who is the fountainhead of all that is good and beautiful, and the one who has chosen to shower us with his blessing. And because of this, each week we have the privilege of coming 
and blessing his good, perfect, and holy name. First and foremost, why we gather to worship is because our God is worthy of worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise your name. You are the one who is perfect in all that you are. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out of death and brought us into life. Lord, would we worship your good and holy name all of our days? Would we not give up meeting together, but would we continue to meet together as we spur one another on, as we help one another be formed in your image, Jesus Christ, as we serve one another to the glory of your name. Amen.